Welcome to the dungeon. I'm Matt. And I'm Renee. We're going to be talking all about Stormcast today. We're going to be talking about the narrative behind them and sort of where they came from, where they're going, and where they've been. An interesting topic that I think hasn't been espoused very highly by GW. They're kind of only promoted as poster boys and not... They don't kind of get into the deep, dark dive of their gritty little secrets and what they may or may not actually be about, but we uncover all of that in this episode. First, we'll get into our, our hobby a little bit, and then we'll get into some games played, and then I've got our little Stormcast expose, Stormcast Exposed. And then after that, we'll talk a little bit about what our favorite models are and sort of favorite... Um, characters in stormcast army and a little bit about what are stormcast armies how how they battle in the mortal realms their their narrative behind them i've got a little narrative myself only only a small one today or this time because i had to actually do a lot of research for this a lot a lot of books to look at a lot of additions to go through i think that it was worth it i have a much better understanding of who the stormcast are and what they're actually doing and hopefully after this so will you as renee said stay tuned Hey, this is the Anvil of Souls. We're going to talk about what we've done in the last two weeks. So, you know what? I'll have you go first, Renee. What have you done in the last two weeks? Be sick. Okay. Well, she was sick for a long time, a long, long, long time. And she did not get any of her hobby goals done. Nope. Uh, sadly. Bad, bad Renee. But maybe I'll, maybe like tomorrow I will uh, stick a paintbrush in her hand after she gets home from work and say, paint, or sure to paint those corns. Um, and did you get any games in? No, I don't think so. Shame, no. shame, shame. <laughs> I know, you've yeah, been let sick. me just hack up a lung on my opponent. Yeah, I know. You've been sick. And, you know, with Corona, it's it's hard to really get out, even afterward, because she was hacking for a good long time after her, you know, after she was sick proper. So, it, you know, even I don't want to sit across from a table with her. I'm like, oh, you can go play in the other bedroom, hack up a lung. Thankfully, it wasn't. Uh, COVID. Yeah, it wasn't COVID. It was just a just a cough that lasted two weeks that was horrible and chesty and just bleh. Yep. We'll talk about what I did because I did quite a lot. Actually, I didn't do a whole lot. Here's what I did. I painted up a squigoth for my orc army, my 40k orc army. And I kind of did it in the scheme that I did my original battle wagon where it's all kind of different colors and I put different like space marine symbols on it to represent the various metals that they may have scavenged and welded together and put on top of this gigantic squigoth. And of course, he's he's uh, orange because he's part of my pumpkin patch. I like him. I think he turned out really well. He did. We'll put a picture on the Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, what else did I do? Oh, I put together but haven't painted yet my um, my mega boss on kill squig or whatever it's called. But I used the special character, the one that's like kind of leaning forward in the saddle, because I thought that he looked so cool. He's got all these bionics, and his bionic arm is leaning over the gigantic squig. And, oh, that model just looks so cool. I can't wait to get into it. After I did that, I very, very conscientiously put him down, picked up 10 corn models, 10 corn warriors, and completely finished them. 100%. Good. All done. Blood and everything. Those guys are done. And I, I will say that hobby goal is... No problem. My kill rig, still in its box, unfortunately. My Gorkonaut, 
unfortunately still in its box, but I'm going to try and get, it's been really a really busy last couple of weeks. I had my last D and D session for the campaign that I've been running forever last Sunday. And with me being in the AOS and the 40 K league, it's been really, really hard to just get time uh, to paint because during the day I've, and this is like the, the really busy part of my, of my work schedule so work's been really busy. And then after I get off of like, you know, eight or 10 hours of looking at a spreadsheet all day and doing that kind of thing, I, I kind of just want to be like, Bleh, I'm going to bed and, or, or like watch TV. It's kind of hard to get motivated to paint after that. I will do that. Thankfully, October is coming to an end and fourth quarter is coming. Hopefully fourth quarter will be a lot better than third quarter. A little bit about games played. I did have a couple of really good games. One of the games that really stood out to me was I had a team game with my 40k orcs against uh, some Necrons and Space Marines. And I also had another orc player that played with me. His name was Colin. And uh, it, w- it was really cool. The The Necron player is really new and we were trying to make sure that, you know, he understood what to do and where and he was murdering orcs left and right. The other Space Marine player, he had dreadnoughts that were just murdering things. Those things are, he had shooty dreadnoughts and oh man, they were just awful. And he had a storm, it's funny, he had a storm raven that we just couldn't, there was no, nothing we could really do to it. We couldn't shoot it out of the sky. Uh, I sent a couple of complimentary bomb squigs at it, but that's just about all we could do. Actually, I think that, I think he took more wounds from overheating his plasma than he did anything else in that game. And that thing just ran around. So I'm definitely going to have to figure out something to do with that flyers with my orcs because right now flyers can just walk all over me. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not a flyer meta or anything, but still it feels bad to not have a solution to flyers when they come about. I'll definitely have to think about that. Maybe the Gorkonaut will help me with that. No, probably not. (laughs) So anyway, um, then I had a really great game against some cruel boys. I played a, another team game, actually. It was myself and a Seraphon player, and I was playing a Stormcast because I wanted to play Stormcast for this episode just to see how, you know, how they felt in third edition with the new book and everything. And we were playing against cruel boys, and that was actually a really close game. I think that what really, the only thing that really cinched it for us was that my guys were blowing up and doing mortal wounds. So I would get stuff down to like, you know, a couple of models and then he would attack back or shoot back or do whatever and kill my guys. And they would just blow up and start blowing everything up in his army doing mortal wounds. We were really mortal wounded each other back and forth. I'll say cruel boys player was Connor. And let me tell you, he played those excellently. I, I really didn't give much credit to the Orc Codex when it first came, I'm sorry, the Orc Battle Tome when it came out, but seeing what he did with it, at least with the Cruel Boys, they've got a couple of little wombo combos that, that really, really hurt. He took his, his Bolt Skewer Boys and shot my Annihilators, and he was like, oh yeah, by the way, that's a bunch of mortal wounds coming right at you, and my Annihilators were like, oh no, they just melted mm. from... I mean, they did their job. They they came in, they did a bunch of mortal wounds, they charged, one of them died to Overwatch because of those, you know, he he had the six, you know, for his Manscure Bolt Boys. And then after that, they killed something, and then they were killed immediately in the next turn. So but they did man. their purpose. Yeah, and that their their new big beasts, they really help out giving giving those cruel boys plus one uh plus one damage. Mm-hmm. 
when they do their mortal wound stuff. Oh, it's so That's nasty. crazy. And he was using his swamp collar shaman really well because he would, he wasn't really using him to cast spells because our side had Lord Croak on the field. So he was like, mm, I'm not going to get a spell off. So every turn he was like, Oh yeah, there's some elixirs over there. There's some elixirs over here. And that was just, Oh, it was so bad because my Stormcast, you know, they, they got like a three up or two up save sometimes with, with command points, but they were really having a hard time dealing with those mortal wounds. His mortal wound output was crazy. There was an unspoken hero in this, and that I believe is the Lord Ordinator, who was my kind of HQ. And when I took him, I was like, yeah, I just kind of want my um, my Annihilators to get in a little closer, so that way have, they have a bigger range for their 10-inch mortal wound output. But I found that he had a lot of good things going for him. For one, he's got like a baton that he throws, kind of like a boomerang, and it actually does damage. It did good damage. It Anytime I needed to like chip a couple of wounds off of something or, oh, that, that squad has one or two more guys left, no problem. He would just boomerang that scepter on over there and whack him. What's the range on that? Oh, it's 18 inches. It's the Lord Imperitant. Oh, my God. All these things sound alike. It's not the Lord Ordinator. It's the Lord Imperitant. I was like, wait, why doesn't he have a range? So, yeah, it has, it's 18 inches and it it's really, I don't know, he just is really good. He also lets me use a command point for free every turn which can be really, really good. Not a command point, but like he can issue a command himself for free. And that came in really handy uh, one or two, I think two games ago or three games ago, I was taking these guys up against Lumineth and they pulled that whole, hey, you need to spend two command points to get every one command. And that was brutal. I mean, brutal. So having this guy in was an unexpected pleasure. Uh, his his melee isn't super that much to talk about. He's got a couple of attacks at two damage and a couple of attacks with his Griff Dog at one damage, but I love me a Griff Dog. I'd say he was definitely my MVP of that game. He he did consistently good output for and he just kind of was there. He was he was kind of what you would expect for a like a commander that doesn't lead from the front. Cool. But, but yeah, we ended up pulling out that game, but in a very, very close. And I will say Connor's a really good orc player. I I think the next time he might actually get me or I have to be on my toes the whole time. So we're going to move on to the hobby tool segment of this. This hobby tool segment is what I affectionately like to call Rebecca's balls. They're, <laughs> they're little steel balls that you can buy. And the ones that I bought were from High Tight Games, uh, which is owned by Rebecca. That's why I call them Rebecca's balls because... Yeah, and they're made store. by Army Painter, yeah, or they're, they're by supplied Painter. by Army Painter. Yeah, they're supplied by Army Painter. And um, although you can get them just about anywhere for pretty cheap, and what they are, they're little little tiny beads that are made out of, of metal and quite heavy. It's made out of stainless steel, and they're actually quite heavy, and you they're little agitation balls that you put inside of your paints, either GW or otherwise. And then when you go to shake up the paint, the, the ball inside helps to shake it up a lot better. And I'll tell you, it really helps for some of the GW paints that like to separate, especially like gold. GW gold has a lot of red in it. And when you open it up, you'll see this thick film of red on top, especially with like brass and stuff. Any of the metals separate pretty bad. Yeah. So I like to put a, a nice steel ball in each one of them. Anytime I open one up and doesn't have one in it, I just toss one in it. And I think I, I bought it like months ago and I still have like, I don't know, 20 ish balls left. And I think it came with like a hundred or 150 or something. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon too, but you know, support your friendly local gaming store. That's what I say. Even though it's a little more expensive 
because it was, you know, had that Army Painter logo on it. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. It was there, right? It was on the shelf. It yep. was available to purchase, and that's what I needed. So I definitely would suggest that if you have um, if you have paints that are giving you trouble or paints that are a little bit sticky sometimes, throw a couple. In fact, you can even throw two balls in there, and they'll work really well with, with certain types of paint. Now, it doesn't work with dry brush paints because GW dry brush paints are like sponges. And it also weird. helps if you have one of those paint shakers that you oh, can yeah. use also. Yeah, like I bought a cheap nail, uh, like nail polish shaker from Amazon for, I don't know, it was like 15 or 20 bucks or something. And it's worked just fine. I mean, yeah, and the, it's fallen off the table a couple times, shaking itself <laughs> off. But but the balls will help with that as well. So an extra agitation to it whenever you go to mix it up. I agree. The word of the day today is agitation. All right. We'll see you guys in the next one. We'll be talking about uh, some, some Stormcast. Oh, we'll be right back. Welcome back. We're going to jump right into the history of the Stormcast Eternals. Hey, Matt here. So first we're going to talk about the Age of Myth, because that's kind of where it all begins. When Sigmar and the rest, and I say the rest, I mean the rest of the Pantheon, got Nagash and Teclis and all those, they ran around and seeded civilizations all throughout the realms. They kind of went around playing civilization maker you would say. And eventually they got to a point where there were so many civilizations that chaos kind of kind of crept in and they were able to do it insidiously, like over a long period of time so that when everything eventually boiled over, uh, there were a whole bunch of problems all at once. Like we know from the elves, they had problems with their lands and the giant civil war. Slaneshi demons manifested inside of Hish and oh, there was all kinds of problems. But for human problems, there were just tons of underground cults and they were kind of trying to play whack-a-mole a little bit and eventually they overthrew much of Akshi and they overthrew a lot of the other realms they threw back well Archeon threw back um, Nagash into the pits of Shaiish and kind of trapped him there and took over much of Shaiish back from you know Sigmar and all the men that had seeded those realms. And so Sigmar felt like the hearts of men had just failed him. And to his mind allowed, they allowed chaos to run rampant, like torture, cruelty, and darkness kind of overfell the land. And so that's why Sigmar decided he wanted to turn his back on the mortal realms disgusted by them. Now it says that the grand Alliance fell apart, guessing that's between Nigash, Sigmar, Teclis, Tyrion, Grugni, Gorkamorka, Ilarial, and I guess Nagash saw Sigmar even in before he went back in, in this like age of chaos, he was plucking the brightest souls for his own use. Even in Shaiish, he went down to Shaiish and right in front of Nagash's nose just said, I'm just going to take this here soul. Yoink. When Nagash is like, okay, well all the souls go to me. And Sigmar's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. You run all the underworlds and we'll, you know, we'll do all the not underworld stuff. And then all of a sudden he's starting to take the brightest and the best from those who are, you know, being assaulted by chaos and, uh, and they're to the last uh, defending their cities. I guess Nagash would get kind of upset. And I mean, he may have actually done the right thing because keeping his people in Azir from the predations of chaos outside meant that they were kind of ignorant and ignorance is really bliss because we saw what happened when Teclis was unable to keep that kind of silence from his elves and Hish because demonic incursions of the you know, of Slaneshi demons actually manifested inside of Hish and there was a great civil war and it kind of undid a lot of what Teclis was trying to do there for a very long time. It was really bad for them. It's a hard choice to make 
to just completely shut yourself off from everything that you've been doing for an entire age of civilization. And I guess it would have to take a hard person to make that choice. And that's Sigma right there. But it's kind of said that Sigmar brooded over the core of the old world while he was trying to decide like what he was going to do. And he just thought maybe he could create a beacon of light to pierce the endless darkness that he thought had just fallen over all of the realms. He wanted to make it so that the core of the old world had sort of a, a link to these new warriors that were supposed to be pure and pure of body and pure of mind and pure of soul. And so he created these superhuman born of humanity's greatest souls with celestial lightning flowing through their veins, eternals. And they really kind of are, well, were, I should say, eternal. Like they really just, they die, go back to the anvil and just get back out again. So clad in Sigmarite, a metal, sort of a magical metal made up of the core of the world that was, Sigmar clung to when he was kind of spinning out in space just before the Dracothian found him. He fashioned that into Sigmarite armor, and that's sort of supposed to be the core of what they're supposed to stand for. Like anytime you see a warrior in Sigmarite armor, you know that that's a Stormcast Eternal, you know what it stands for. And that's kind of what he wanted was a symbol. You can tell Stormcast Eternals from afar. They definitely have a look to them. So before they're spun out into Stormcast Eternals, they have to survive what's called this Trials of Ascension to be granted their strength. And their souls have to be forged on the Anvil of Apotheosis, which is actually really, really painful according to firsthand accounts by actual Stormcast in the Black Library books. I know when the Stormcast Eternal that was with Gotrick, when he would talk about the reforging, it was almost like he blocked it out of his mind. It was so painful. And of course, when one of the souls escaped from being forged in another one of their books, it ran around screaming and kind of seemed really insane. So it must be a really rough process. Supposedly, after they're pressed like this or after they're cleansed or purified, they're, they emerge pure and free of corruption. Well, I was reading in the Stormcast Eternals book that Grugney was helping Sigmar create the process to create the Stormcast Eternals. Yeah, he kind of, when, when Sigmar became disgusted with with it. Grugny kind of had another plan. Grugny was, he always felt like his race that he created would do better without his constantly looking over their shoulders. He was like, oh, well, the only way they're going to get stronger is if they, you know, learn to fend for themselves. So he had no problem going up with Sigmar and, and kind of, he created the anvil of apotheosis and he created the, helped create the armor and he create helped create the process by which the Stormcast are purified. It's really funny because there's actually another figure that's up there with them. Do you know who that is? It's Gorka <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Gorkamorka. I don't know if you're going to talk about it later, but it was Grugny that created the runes put on the Stormcast Eternals armor to try to help them from going from not going crazy. Yeah, I, I, I actually am going to talk about it a little bit earlier when we talk about Age of Sigmar in 3.0, because that that sort of signifies a little bit of a change for from what was happening. But first, I'm kind of going to talk about, now that we've talked a little bit about the Age of Myth, and then we've gone into the Age of Chaos, and right now, if you can imagine it, we are smack dab in the middle of the Age of Chaos, or like maybe toward the end of it, and Sigmar now has all these these warriors who have been sort of, they've been created, and they kind of are sealed off a little bit from the outside world, so first he had to train them and like organize them, okay, and so he, he, organize them into chambers, which each are supposed to serve a different purpose. And they're supposed to be somewhat flexible. 
So the core chamber is actually called the strike chamber, which pours them onto a battlefield, quote, like lightning from the sky to teleport down and surprise the enemy. So initially he wanted to do this as a way to like blind the enemy to, you know, so that way it was a, a strike of fury. And of course, anytime you have troops that are just appearing on a battlefield, no matter where they are, it can be absolutely monstrous, just horrible for whoever it is that they're uh, surprising. Right. So imagine this, you're like, you're a chaos force and you're 10 times the number that's inside of the city and you you're busting down the gates and oil is being poured onto your troops and hot lead is being poured from the ramparts and arrows are flying down on you. And you just about have the doors open when all of a sudden a blinding flash from behind just takes you by surprise. And then all of a sudden you're pinned against the city and there are hundreds of these stormcast warriors that are just mowing through your troops at a horrible speed. They're immensely powerful. They say they have the strength of 15 men and they're able to just fight for days without even the slightest hint of being whatever. And not to mention when you finally do kill one, it's not like he slumps down and you're like, hi, you're dead. He explodes into a flash of lightning and then disappears back up into the sky. So you're, you're just like, what, what happened? Well, they can fight without the fear of death. Oh yeah. And can you imagine if you really, if you were one of those first uh, batch of stormcast that came down and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you die, we'll just reforge. It's no big deal. You would literally just fight until you, you put yourself in impossible situations and push yourself to the absolute limit just so that way, you know, you could achieve whatever victory is needed because there's no real fear, right? Yeah. So the court, like I said, the court chamber is called a strike chamber. And then they have what's called the Vanguard Auxiliary Chamber, which kind of scouts ahead. They they kind of, they get flashed onto a field and they're supposed to identify targets for the other strike chambers to teleport down into. And sometimes they assassinate key enemy targets and they wait for more chambers to teleport and they like put out teleport beacons. It's said that they light the way that's the quote light the way for other chambers. So I don't know if they act as, as like a, like a lightning rod for other chambers to be teleported in, but it maybe makes me think that they don't know enough about the battlefield sometimes before they teleport down or like whether or not it's actually necessary. Can you imagine like 500 stormcast teleport down into what is supposed to be like a major battle and all they find is just a field of corpses. All right, so do you want to take the extremis chamber? Yeah, so we talked about the core chamber, and so now is the extremis chamber, and it's the heavy cavalry chamber. Stormcasts don't ride horses. They ride dragons and drakes. So they descend from the sky on these huge dragons and drakes, which would be very intimidating to the opposing army. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Can you imagine if you were... If you if you were like a, a chaos bastion and you had this big fortress around you and you're like, haha, we are impenetrable to these puny human armies. And then all of a sudden, like seven or eight dragons just start murdering everybody on the ramparts from above. Yeah. It would be pretty terrible. All of a sudden they can fly and reach places. And this is, of course, because Sigmar sort of joined forces in the very beginning with Dracothian, who sort of saved him from <laughs> spinning out in space forever. So these are supposed to be all of her children that she breathed light into. That's the second chamber. And then we have the sacrosanct chamber, which they actually guard the anvil of apotheosis. And they're very mysterious. But if you can imagine, you don't want that anvil to fall because then all of a sudden you can't make more stormcast. Oh, it'd be terrible. Imagine if it was stolen like Almaraz. 
Yeah. And you definitely don't want it to be taken over by somebody like Chaos. Yeah, you wouldn't want Archeon getting his hands on that thing. No. Oh, God, that would be terrible. That would be worse than destroying it. So it makes me wonder if Sigmar knows the links between magic and chaos because he keeps these this sort of magical chamber apart from all the other chambers. And not only that, but he seals all of their records. He doesn't let anybody else read any of the records about this chamber. And I'm wondering if that's in case one of them falls to like magical corruption because we know how easy it is when we're dealing with magic to just fall down this chaos rabbit hole. It's very insidious, right? But there must be secrets. If he's keeping something hidden, there must be something to hide, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know if... I think it'd be easier for one of the other chambers to fall to chaos than them because they're not out there. You know what I mean? Like You're right. They weren't out there before AOS 2.0 came along, oh. but, but they will... Uh, I'm wondering if also, I mean, he keeps it secret. Maybe that's because he doesn't want anybody else knowing the process of the anvil of apotheosis, like how horrible it is, how degrading it might be to a soul. Also, if one of the other chambers falls, he doesn't want the secrets getting out. That's true. I mean, that could be that could be the case. Now, another thing that I that I'm kind of wondering is because they hint that there is a kind of a high failure rate. So I'm wondering how many souls do they actually just consume? How many souls burn up? How many souls fail all those trials? Yeah. That's rough. So those are the chambers, the major chambers indeed. I kind of want to talk a little more now about what they were doing at the beginning of the Realmgate Wars, the beginning of the Age of Sigmar. This is where Sigmar opens up, throws open the gates to Azir for like a short time and then just decides we're going to strike everywhere all at once, but in certain places, very, very hard. So he takes all of these newly forged warriors and he teleports them down to secure the gates of Azir in a place called the Brimstone Peninsula, which is kind of overrun by a horde of corn lunatics called the Gortide. And they were led by a Corgus a particularly nasty mighty lord of corn who has an axe called the reality splitting axe that just opens up a portal to pretty much the chaos realm so anytime he hits you with it he has a, it's just a chance that you just might get sucked right in Ew. and never seen from again eventually they took the gates of azir and opened them because they had to be unlocked from both sides and that way Sigmar's armies could sort of light the path for the armies of the heavens to come forth. So they took this, this one place from there, they could kind of spread out to the rest of all the rest of the realms. And then their second task was to rescue the hammer Galmaraz because in one of the last battles in just before the age of chaos, or I guess during the age of chaos now, Sigmar was tricked into, into throwing Galmaraz and uh, they, they teleported it away to like somewhere else. They were just like, oh, bye. We're just going to teleport this away. And he didn't have Galmaraz for a long, long, long time. And I guess it graded on him. So that apparently came at a very, very high cost, the rescuing of Galmaraz. See, I wonder if this, this first objective, I understand, is a military objective. You had to get this one place so that way you had access to the realms. But why the second one? I mean, I know they talk about they talk about it as like a symbol of of his power and a symbol of the realms, but spent so much resources getting this back that you have to wonder, you know, like was it really worthwhile? And the worst part is when you read about what happened with because they tried to forge this mightiest of warriors, the first, the the prime Celestin, and they I guess put a little too much into him and forged him a little too hard because he was just an unmoving body on the pyre, like it wouldn't waken. Hmm. 
He wouldn't wake up. He was just dead, apparently. It wasn't until they put Galmaraz in his hands that he sprang forth and all of a sudden was a thing. And I'm wondering, because they talk about how he doesn't lead any particular storm host or any particular legion, but whenever he goes to any of the storm hosts, then he takes on their aspects. Like if they're particularly savage, like he'll take on a savage form or he might take on a a red crimson hue and become more maniacal and bloodthirsty if he's with a storm host that does that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if the Celestine Prime is even a person or if it's just maybe the armored personification of Galmaraz that's just going around like... That's the way it sounds more like. But then in the last Broken Realms book, when the Celestine Prime comes down and was talking to Marathi, he's like, you need to come back to Azir and answer for your crimes. And she's like, you don't know who you're talking to more. What do you, who, who exactly are you again? What kind of God are you again? And I don't, so I don't think he's as powerful as a, like an actual God or even a demigod like she is Marathi Kane. I think it's just the, you know, the weapons manifestation. Maybe. So anyway, that came at a very, very high cost. I mean, they talked about every warrior that went down there died sometimes two and three times, Wow, which is really, really bad for a Stormcast, like super bad. Mm-hmm. After that, they went about getting the band back together, which means they went around kind of figuring out where the other gods of the Pantheon were and then doing whatever is needed to like de-entrench them from wherever their stronghold yeah. was. So they rescued Alarial's seeds and planted her so that she could be reborn. And that was the Hollowed Knights Order that did that. And apparently she was very happy about that because then she could essentially be become reborn as this icon of vengeance and almighty nastiness so they apparently the hollowed knights are now very closely entrenched with Alarial and her git and they went and fought off nurgle and then they went to akshi and and a couple other places and paid off the fire slayers to fight for them because apparently urgold is really really plentiful or was really plentiful in azir and they didn't have any use for it they just kind of stored it away and so they were like Hey, all you fire slayers, come work for us. We've got lots of gold. And the fire slayers are like, okay, sounds good. Mercenaries. Yeah, they, they kind of were mercenaries. So then they teleported down to Shaish and they began taking the lost cities of bone and sort of helping Nagash because underneath of them, I mean, I didn't say helping Nagash on purpose. They were accidentally helping Nagash because underneath of all those cities that Sigmar had built, or rather Nagash had helped Sigmar build, there were Ossiarch Bone Reaper vaults. And before that, the cities were completely sealed off because chaos had overtaken them and was triumphant. And Nagash was kind of pushed back into a corner of his realm, kind of like the, if you can imagine, he was almost trapped. But then Archeon decided he wanted to get into the mix. And with his armies and Varengard, he just began smashing Stormcast army after army. This is kind of where problems arise because before this, Stormcast were everywhere all at once making surprise attacks and winning. They were winning. You have to understand, they were winning almost all the battles that they were fighting and it didn't come at a very high cost because, of course, all the surprise and the nature of the battle just meant that they would persevere. But then Archeon came and started just smashing them. And that's when they had to be reforged over and over and over and over to take what appeared to be the same place. It was almost trench warfare, but like in castle form, it was called the All Gates. And when Archeon was using that, it was just army after army of mortals, just throwing them against Stormcast. He didn't care, right? I mean, like there's always armies that are willing to march for Archeon. He yeah. just throws them at him. Mm. And meanwhile, anytime a Stormcast was destroyed, they're coming back a little worse off and a little worse off. And we'll get a little bit about that in a second because their humanity was kind of being stripped away. 
Now, this is where the problems came start coming in with Stormcast. They are essentially immortal, but each reforging strips them of some part of their humanity. And I'm not talking about necessarily they become, some of them do become cold-hearted killers. Some of them have like a fantasy version of PTSD where they'll remember themselves in a different place fighting different things like the Stormcast that's with Gotrick is consistently reminded of when he was fighting Night Haunt in Shaiish. And sometimes their memories become wiped away or they become hazy and they're constantly like in a fugue searching for old memories that are not quite there. One of the Stormcasts in the book, he actually was a was a, like a farmer in his earlier self and he grabs a pear and eats it and he Ever since he was sliced in half by this demon that had elven arms, he can't taste anymore. And mm-hmm. so he kind of like throws the pear away and is very unhappy because he remembers being able to taste fresh fruit and it being so sweet. And so now he, he really can't taste hardly anything. And then he just like clasps on his helmet and goes up to the ramparts to fight a battle. And he's like, well, time to be a hero again. So you can, you can imagine that these initial people who are so full of... They talk about how at first they were tribal and they were fierce and they had battle songs and they had things that made them distinct and individualized. And then over reforgings, they began to actually lose the things that they cherished the most. Yeah. And sometimes when they were reforged, they would start becoming reforged into things that they feared, which is really weird. Mm. They would take on the aspects of things that they feared. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, after the All Points Realmgate Wars, Stormcast were fighting on three major fronts. They were fighting against death, because just after that is when the whole problem with Nagash begins. They were fighting against chaos almost everywhere. And they were also fighting against greenskin hordes, because they always had to fight against greenskin hordes. It's just the nature of the beast, right? So, in addition, they were, they were fighting on all these small fronts across the realm and it makes me wonder if this is where Sigmar begins to make his mistake because the whole reason why he encapsulated himself in Azir is because he was fighting a losing war on every front and against almost an incalculable or innumerable foe with very little in the way of like allies so he has kind of freed some allies but then some people turn on him Nagash specifically turns on him and it's kind of important to note that while Sigmar did eventually take the all points each fortress is the size of an entire city and stands and surrounded on all sides by just chaos cursed wastelands there's no like getting supplies from the land itself they can't do anything with the land around it. it's just a bunch of mutants and well i guess chaos warbands that are just roaming around they're attacked regularly. Archeon, by the way, all this time, he hasn't stopped sending armies to just go at them. So they haven't really had a cessation of attacks in all of these, you know, if you think about it, hundreds of years or maybe even thousands. So after a long, long time of war and strife, the impure ritual is completed and the Necroquake happens. We all know what happened. Nagash tried to concrete his power and create an enormous Shaiish that would encapsulate all the realms and create nothing but Nagash. Unfortunately, uh, those insidious rat men made his, his inverted floating pyramid of realmstone impure through their concoctions mm-hmm. and explosions. And after the Necroquake, Sigmar decides that he needs to take some of these storm hosts that are, if you can imagine, already stretched to almost the brink and assemble teams of them to hunt down living, like rogue living magic. 
So the first thing he does is he takes some of the prosecutors and some of the Knights Venators to hunt them. Okay, so you remember the sacrosanct chamber that he keeps all secretive and is supposed to like guard the anvil of apotheosis and he's like, no, no, they're too, you know, they're too important for me to like just send down against the armies of chaos. Well, he taps these guys and mm -hmm. he sends out a bunch of Lord Economs and pretty much the entire chamber minus a, a couple of like, uh, you know, he had to have some to guard the anvil of apotheosis, but he he sends them down to destroy or trap the magic, sort of representing a time in which Stormcast have specifically identified threats to allocate resources against that are not chaotic in nature. You have to understand they are fighting so many fronts right now that just considering starting a new war or allocating resources against a new war, they have to use their reserves. And they have to because these these rogue spells are doing things like destroying cities. There's no way to really stop them other than to send specifically trained people out to like bind those spells. So I have a question for you. And I don't know if you plan on talking about this later on, but why doesn't Sigmar create more warriors? Is there a reason why he can't create more? Well, he is creating more. And it talks about how he's constantly creating more and more and more and more. But you have a real problem because every time, like it, apparently it, it takes just the same amount of time to birth a new Stormhost, right? Like you have maybe 50 Stormcast Eternals that are, are born at about the same time. But the problem is that while souls are constantly coming in, there's this backlog of souls that need to get reforged. So he has to get through all of those before he can forge any new souls. Now he did have these things called storm vaults, right? And they were kind of dangerous treasure troves of items, weaponry, and honest to God souls that couldn't be destroyed. They were just too dangerous to fall into enemy hands, but too like important or he was unable to just kill them or destroy them. Or they were maybe some Stormcast in there that like he wanted to tap later on in order to create more. Maybe he thought there was eventually going to be a time when Stormcast were no longer going to be immortal. And unfortunately, one of the unintentional consequences of the Necroquake was that the protective spells around these Storm Vaults were dispelled and destroyed. So all of a sudden across all the realms, there were all these storm vaults that had lain dormant for a long, long time, attracting ne'er-do-wells to them for the power that they had, right? And we're talking about things that could destroy cities. So the enemies of Sigmar sort of flocked to these storm vaults in order to plunder their contents. So not only does this chamber have to like go around hunting these endless spells, but they also have to go either protect or destroy or gather up the items or the souls or whatever from these storm vaults all across all the realms. Talk about stretched thin. Sigmar sent out the Sacrosanct Chamber, right, to hunt down those endless spells and secure the contents of the storm vaults. However, since they were doing that, they weren't able to do their actual job, which was supposed to be to soothe the souls of the reforged. And so they talked about how Stormcast Eternal souls degraded a lot faster than before. So I'm thinking maybe instead of like, let's say you before you needed 10 plus times in order for a soul to degrade to worthlessness. Now, maybe two to three times of death before they started becoming insane and losing empathy. And they had this thing that they used to do. Okay, so you have this thing called the Eighth Law, and that's where Reforged Stormcast are supposed to be, like, go into gladiatorial training and have a bit of, like, counseling for mm -hmm. what is supposed to be a very, very horrible process, the reforging. It's supposed to be very stressful on both your mind and your body, and since they have to go into training, I'm supposing that every time they're reforged, they kind of lose a little bit of their 
martial prowess. Like maybe they aren't as good as they once were. They start losing their memories and stuff that probably part of the issue. They kind of forget about their training or. Yeah. So when we get to just past after the necroquake happens and when everything starts really going to hell and this chamber is just kind of emptied out and sent down to do all this stuff, this eighth law is kind of set by the wayside and almost forgotten. Virtually forgotten is what the quote is. And reforged souls are just kind of thrown back into the fray. Hmm. They're like, well, here's your armor that was, that came back with you. Uh, Please excuse the blood that's inside of it. Uh, Clean that off at your leisure and get back down there and then get back to fighting. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Can you imagine how many storm hosts are now just like, like dead fish killers after being reforged again and again and again. And they don't have any real, it's talked about how the records are slim on how many reforgings each one has. Whereas before they would know exactly how much and they would be able to sort of see how much the soul degraded over time. At this point, they were just reforging them as fast as they could and just throwing them back out there. The worst part is they remember their deaths. They remember every time they died. So can you imagine how horrible it would be to remember a particularly terrible death and then be thrown back into almost the same war at probably the same place to maybe retake the exact same place that you either failed to take or was taken from you and how horrible that would be on a person. Oh, that would just be terrible, right? Yep, it would be. So it probably would have the opposite effect of what we were talking about earlier with having no fear of death. All of a sudden they might have a fear of death now. Yeah. They don't want to relive dying. That's just crazy. Another thing we didn't, I didn't even talk about was that the souls of those people that are harvested by the night haunt that appear throughout all the realms during the Necroquake, they were dragged down to Shaiish after they were harvested by these night haunt, where they're reformed by Nagash in sort of a parody of Sigmar, and then they just become part of Nagash's armies. Nagash will imprint onto them a certain, you are fear, and you over there, you are dread, you are terror, and then that's what they encapsulate for the Mm. rest of their incorporeal existence. Apparently, since he can't get Stormcast souls in this way at all, he takes, he goes to this incredible length to try to figure out how to trap Stormcast souls, and he actually does succeed a little bit. Like, he, he does kind of figure out how to get Stormcast souls. Huh. It didn't do work out so well for him but it's still crazy that he could eventually do it and it did take him himself like he took a a splinter of nagash to actually do that oh wow so we're gonna i just want to take a small break from talking about the timeline and sort of talk about the various hosts because we've been talking a little bit about what they were for and like how who who was fighting where but now i'd like to talk about what the actual hosts are these are the individual sub factions that you can pick in your Stormcast book and they kind of are clearly defined as their personality or their kind of personalities after the realm gate wars where sort of repeating reforgings begin to take a toll and they all begin to sort of go one way. So like all the storm hosts in this one storm host will begin to look or act a certain way. All the other ones will start to act or look another way based on maybe whatever realm they came down on where they, what battles they fought, who they fought and sort of the emotional toll that that came from. You want to start with talking about the, the structure? Sure. I guess we could talk about the first one, which is the Hammers of Sigmar. And they were good at ruling the cities or to help rule the cities, I guess, that, you know, keep order within the cities. And the Hammers of Sigmar have all been reforged at least two or three times. 
So as you can imagine, these people in these cities where these stormcasts are start watching these these warriors and thinking that they're losing their humanity. They're just kind of shells, I guess you could describe them. Yeah, because they come, they become mute warriors almost. Yeah, and they, they just train and fight, right? They just kind of are there to do their job, and that's about it. But they are good at their job. They're good at defending, and they have pretty much limitless resources. And limitless resources are not a thing that, this is very important because it's not a thing that other storm hosts necessarily have because they are sort of the ones who rule all of the enormous and very important cities of Sigmar. They can decide where funds get allocated or where weapons might go or where new armies might go. That's why it said that they have like almost limitless resources. Okay. Okay. So the next one is they're called the Hallow Knight and they are fanatics and religious extremists. So they're kind of the almost the opposite of the ones defending the cities. Their motto is kind of it's Sigmar's way or the highway. You follow Sigmar or not. So they are stuck trying to help root out Nurgle. So they take on the aspect of humility, but they're still have the problem of being reforged and kind of losing their humanity. So they start to hear voices in their heads. They tell themselves that this is Sigmar's voice. Kind of helps cement their whole fanatic religious yeah. Sigmar's way or the highway, you know, thoughts. Now, and the big question is like, is it actually Sigmar's voice? Because I don't really think it is Sigmar's voice. No, I don't think so either. And when when you say that they they espouse humility, they take on this aspect of humility that's a little bit overdone and it almost seems fake. When you think of somebody who's a fanatic or extremist, that's kind of what you think about. Like it's so over the top that. Yeah, there has to be some sort of a like, okay, guy, you're doing a little, this is a little, well, you're wondering if, if they're doing this to try to try to hide their inhumanity, like they're, they're follow maybe they're following a script, the humility script, and that's how they hide the things that they've lost. I think it's just the voices in their heads are making them crazy. <laughs> Could be. You want to move on to the Knights Excelsior? You can do that one. Okay. The Knights Excelsior are particularly merciless, and they kind of rule with an iron fist that actually reminded me a bit of how the vampires rule. Because like in, in Viracost, for instance, when you are convicted of any little tiny crime, no matter what it is, then you're pretty much hung out into the street and you're you're like all your blood is taken as sort of recompense your blood dry yeah. and this is kind of how it feels like but instead of being blood dry you just kind of disappear and are never seen again and you are dead i guarantee you they will kill you but they've got these inquisition squads that just disappear people in a really kgb kind of way if you know what i mean like if any little hint of disloyalty is shown because before they had all the, they kind of had a problem with chaos cults pop popping up and so their way to deal with it was to just, instead of playing whack-a-mole, they would say, well, uh, everybody in this building is guilty. Let's all just drag them off. And they were never seen from or heard from again. Mm. And they particularly hate, uh, it's funny because they, I mean, funny in, in, in like a gallows humor type of way. They particularly hate magic users and they bring them down into the, and especially elves, they bring them down into this chamber that has all these mirrors on it and they just drive them crazy, making them look at themselves in the mirrors, talking yeah. about how much of a monster they are and this and that. We find out in the Broken Realms book that there's actually a chaos cult that infiltrated their inquisitorial like section and they used those torture chambers as a sacrificial circle 
which eventually birthed the Slaneshi twins. So it's doing the exact opposite of what they're striving so hard to crack down on. I'd say it's funny if it wasn't so, I mean, it's not funny, but it's definitely ironic. Yes. Definitely ironic. So if you could imagine being a person in this city and living in 1984, like the actual novel, like you're living that out, but in a medieval setting where outside of the city is just death because the realms are really, really harsh for normal people a lot of the time. And then inside it's just constant fear and suspicion where you're not like you're taught that you are not just supposed to tattle on your neighbors or your friends or maybe even your family, but you're required to. Can you imagine quotas or, oh, well, you haven't, you haven't found very many, uh, very many people that are talking out against the city. That means you must be talking out against the city and then they just disappear to you. Yeah. Uh, it's just so, just living in that constant fear and suspicion is just crazy. That's the Knights Excelsior and they're a very hard bunch apparently. Sounds like it. And these are supposed to be Stormcast Eternals. These are supposed to be the people that are supposed to inspire all of the humanity around them. And you can see that they are inspiring them, but they're inspiring them to a, like a, a weird personification of them losing their humanity. So the next Excelsior are witch hunters and extremists that they kind of have this like fear and superstition and the people around them exude that same amount of fear and superstition. It's just really odd. So then we move on to the anvils of Heldenhammer and they hate and fear Nagash and they fear that their souls are going to end up with Nagash and they do not want that. So they took part in a lot of the Shaishian campaigns. They particularly despise Ossiarch Bone Reapers, which is ironic that as they get reforged, they start looking like the dead, like the living dead. So they start getting pale, pallid skin. Their voices start getting really husky and scary. And then they start to worship somebody other than Sigmar or somebody's other than Sigmar. Yeah, that's weird, huh? Like, you, yeah. Can you imagine how much it would take to make you give up the, the God that forged you into an immortal being and instead worship somebody else? How much fear would you have to have in your heart? Well, and for hating Nagash, they start to worship some of the death gods that were swallowed up by Nagash. So as much as they fear Nagash taking their souls, they start worshiping other death gods. Yeah, because before Nagash, other death gods were all around Shaish and they had these kind of like little idyllic places where all of the souls that worshiped them would go into their afterlife. So if you had like a, like, let's say you had a barbarian gods that they thought, oh, the afterlife would be about feasting and battles. Well, you'd have like a little, a little Nadir in Shaish that would just a little bubble that just would be all about feasting and battle or another one that might say, well, I think that we all become trees and we all grow up into these great forests. Well, there would be a place in Shaish that would be great forest full of just souls that were swaying gently in the Shaishian breeze. And then Nagash came and just started killing all of them and consuming them. It's interesting because there's one last thing about these guys that makes them really unique amongst storm hosts. And that's that they don't fear reforging. They don't care about dying at all. They don't care about the reforging process. They're just like, eh, whatever. I would say they fear of dying and Nagash getting them. Yeah, they, they don't fear dying. They fear Nagash getting their soul. Yeah. Which is kind of different. That's really scary, though. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine like a bunch of storm 
like a storm host comes into your city and they help you win a battle and then they take off their helmets and go into like council with you or guarding or something. And they look like the living dead. They look like zombies and their, their faces are pallid and shrunken. And they're like, yes. And you're like, Oh God, that's, that's really weird. It's creepy, yeah. right? Oh, do you want to talk about the celestial vindicators too? Because you really like flesh terrors and 40 K. That was, that was what Renee did at first when she was wanted to do blood angels. Yeah, I guess I can. Like Matt said, the Celestial Vindicators, they feel a bit like flesh tears from 40K. They are berserkers who probably shouldn't be leading cities. They're very hot-tempered. When their city rioted, they reacted by butchering three quarters of the population in the city in a single night. They were just like, you know what? Nope. Death to everyone. I, you yeah. know, it's weird because I keep seeing historical waypoints from some of these chambers. And this one, I'm reminded of like the ancient Mongolians when they would take over a city there. They had, you know, every every ancient army had a problem when they took over a city and there would be, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people in the city and only a couple thousand people in their army, they would have to say, okay, well, each soldier has to kill like 20 or 30 people. And apparently killing 20 or 30 people each was a, a like a non-starter for most people in all places. But these ancient Mongolians, they kind of, they just did it. They would just say, okay, well, everybody needs to grab, you know, 50 heads before the end of the night. And they would just go out and do it. Yeah. I mean, it would be very hard if those 100,000 people start a revolution against you. So the way to solve that is cull the population. And But most other societies that you've seen, aside from maybe the Assyrians who would do something very similar, ancient Assyrians, most people didn't do that. They would use the carrot and not the stick, but... Well, they, I don't know, because they would take slaves. They would do it different ways. That's true. They wouldn't kill them, but they would find other ways of suppressing the population. Yeah, like the Assyrians were particularly terrible about just murdering whole populations that didn't, that disagreed with them. And when they were finally overthrown, the Persians were exactly the opposite. They were like, oh, you do this particularly well? Well, join our empire and here's what we'll give you. Uh, keep living your life the way you want and just you make us the best Navy that you can mm -hmm. and we'll use it. And then we'll give you all the resources you need from everything else. So they were very carrot like, but these guys, oh man, I, I never even thought that a storm host would butcher a city. But when I heard that three quarters of an entire population of a city in a single night, that's hard, right? Yep. yep. Oh man. That's just like really, really rough. And when you think about it, these guys are supposed to be the good guys. Mm -hmm. Oof. I mean, I know that the city was rioting, but man, three quarters. I don't know if you talk about this later, but it makes you think about what, what does Sigmar think about all this? Like, Or does Sigmar even know about this? Does he, do these reports filter back to him? I know you kind of think that maybe he can't see down or obviously he can't look at all the places at once. Yeah. Does he even know that this happened? Or is it just lost because, you know, he's fighting a war on every single front all at once and it's a losing war, kind of. He's like always on his back foot. He always has to be worrying about this, that, or something else, like uh, actual enemies, you know? It's like each group of Stormcast has a problem. Yeah. Like, and they're all kind of different and they're all making like They have their own problems. So, like, how can he not know that something's going on? I don't know. Maybe he's just blinded by this thought of, oh, well, they're pure purity and everything. They're, no problem. Just send them on out. Oh, and you know, like before even he sent the Defenders of the Anvil, they knew oh, about 
Yeah, they knew about the degrading. Change. Yeah, they knew about the, de- the degrading of the souls and they were taking steps to try to make it not so bad. He has to know that they are burning the candle at both ends and just like destroying sort of the goodwill and good faith. Although there are some people who are all for it. You see in in the newest book, when they go out to like make that new city of Sigmar in Gur, they're just like, oh, well, you know, it's a hard place and we're hard people. So that's, that's why the Stormcast have to be the way they are. Then we get to Stormhost called the Sons of Malice. And I'm going to take them just because they are, in my mind, just straight up evil. And when I think about evil, I don't think about like murder or I don't think about stealing or theft so much as I think about greed. And when I say greed, I mean, I get mine no matter who it hurts. And that's evil, right? If you if you say, well, I'm going to get whatever it is that I do, I want this and I don't care who it hurts. That's a, that's an evil thought. This storm host, they suffered apparently a lot in reforging and they take pleasure in hunting down evil and killing it, which is really tough, right? Because they almost, they get their jollies from the fear of their prey and they'll prolong a hunt just so that way, just so that way they kind of have their fill of this fear, which I mean, it kind of draws a little bit on that dark Eldar aspect you know, maybe their souls are dripping out the bottom, kind of like the dark or Drakari now are, are dripping out the bottom and they need to refill it with something. They need to, you know, they have to have some sort of a purpose. And, and it's referenced that now it only takes about two or three times of being reforged before the empathy begins to fade. Now that the sacrosanct chamber isn't there to sort of soothe you when your soul gets back up. So man, this, can you imagine a storm host that is comes down and its only purpose is to torment you until it eventually kills you. That's what the sons of malice are. That's who we're, <laughs> we're talking about good guys here. It's all good guys. Like even the best, the hammers of Sigmar, they're like, oh, well, they're cold, unfeeling statues. That's, mm-hmm. that's rough, right? That is rough. Well, you're going to talk about the Celestial Warbringers. Okay. So then we'll move on to the Celestial Warbringers who actually are magic users. They like being in battle, blasting enemies of Sigmar with their magic. They have this weird jovialness to them. Almost excited to use magic. Yeah. They like it. It's weird. Like they, can you imagine you're like a soldier beside one and you're prepping for a charge and you're like kind of nervous and these corn warriors are like bearing down on you and this guy beside you is like, oh, <laughs> look at that fireball. And he like flings one out and just murders 20 people. And he's like, yeah, 20 that time. And you're like, dude, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and they seem to be less affected by reforging, maybe because of their magical use. Maybe it kind of protects them or keeps them kind of together better yeah maybe it insulates them yeah insulate that's the word so they seem to be the most normal of the storm hosts although like you said it would be a little weird to be in a battle with one of them and they're just kind of laughing having fun kind of going along going along blasting people apart with magic and when you say the words blasting somebody apart with magic normally you don't get this like really visceral scene in your mind but if you've ever watched anything like invincible and you get to the scene where the the superheroes who had never been in a battle they get in their first battle and they look around and see just 
these people crawling on the ground and their innards are out and there's blood everywhere and they just freeze up and they're like, uh, what the heck is happening here? But then you've got like a seasoned veteran that's just going around laughing as he chops people in half and just this horrible panorama of death and destruction. So that's them. And we do have another one that's a little bit, also a little better. They're called the Tempest Lords. These Tempest Lords, they came from all nobles and they were sort of designed to be fair-handed rulers to the cities of Sigmar. And I, I feel like when Sigmar first sent down his storm hosts, he imagined that a lot of the other ones that were kind of impure and maybe the ones that are witch hunters would would maybe be just like the battling type. You know, maybe they would rule outposts or places where war was more common. And then maybe the Tempest Lords would be spread out more. And then they would rule cities of Sigmar that were just a little more fair-handedly. It didn't really go that way, but... It's kind of... It's that way now because in Settler's Gain, the Tempest Lords are the ones who rule and they're currently trying to like put out fires and I say put out fire, like political fires. And they're, they're dealing with these sort of elves that are all haughty and not necessarily causing problems, but they kind of mediate disputes. And the part of the city that isn't made of elves is actually called like the lesser part of the city. <laughs> so they're considered to be like humanity is considered to be lesser folk. So can you imagine if you were if you were in this new city as like a pilgrim trying to so hard to like bring Sigmar onto this new war front and allying with these new elves, these like bright light elves in there. And then they start like kind of calling you lesser and dirty or I mean, it's weird. Yeah. But these guys, I almost think that they aren't very good for battle because they take they what they'll do is they'll plan for years and sometimes even decades before they commit to a campaign and they have these overly complex plans and they have a system where kind of if they don't get enough kills in a battle they're supposed to feel shameful about it so like you can imagine you're all stood at like lining up and just before the battle the the enemy comes out and shoots a bunch of arrows and one takes you in the chest and puts you down or maybe like 10 puts you down mm. And so you're supposed to feel shame about that after the battle because you didn't get like, you know, 25 enemy kills. But it does sort of, uh, it explains a lot about how, why they might be good rulers. Because A, they all came from noble stocks, so they understand how to rule in their former life. And then they also don't die very often. They aren't reforged very often because they make these overly complex plans. And the, the problem is though, they won't defend a city that might fall. They they only commit to an attack where victory is assured, mm -hmm. which I don't know. Maybe that is the type of immortal that is needed for this type of war. Maybe the you know, Sigmar tries way too hard to get all these fronts into the into a war and feel like maybe if he just tightened the circle and gave up some of those battles that are just not he's not going to win, it might help him a little more. I mean, it yeah. would suck, but. Hey, he's done it before, right? He mm -hmm. locked himself in his ear for, you know, however many years while chaos ran, ran rampant. So why doesn't he consolidate his power and, and just try to build actual you know, strong points? Who knows what's in, going through his brain? Uh, he's a warrior king. Maybe he gets off on, uh, maybe he really just likes to the war, the never ending war. I mean, if you think about it, other gods, they almost can't help doing what they do. Like Nagash can't help but be spiteful and... Teclas just can't help but be haughty and try to make overly complex plans. And the Chaos Gods, they can't help doing what they do because they 
that's their single-minded purpose. And if Sigmar is a warrior king, then he's going to find battles to fight no matter what. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's almost like an experiment to him. Maybe he's enjoying seeing what all these different storm hosts are doing, like to see what happens and... Yeah, yeah. And then there's the Astral Templars. And they're kind of barbarian versions of Stormcast who hunt down and kill big monsters and then mount their heads on the walls of the keeps. They kind of have this pride thing going on where if there's like a challenge out there, they're drawn to it. Like the bigger the monster, the more likely they are to try to go down and hunt it. So right now, when when they heard about Kragnos, they were like, oh yeah, we're going to go after him. His head's going on our wall. And I feel like that may have been sort of a mistake. They kind of feel a little bit like Space Wolves, and they kind of do have a tribal war paint go- thing going on with bone fetishes and bits and things like that. They also kind of remind me of orcs a little bit, because orcs have that same mentality in AOS where they'll sometimes go on these hunts for big monsters and They'll just say, okay, well, it's time to hunt us a big monster to prove that we're, yeah, you know, we're good enough. I wonder if the Astral Templars were maybe in a big battle with orcs. Well, they are in Gur. So I'm thinking that maybe Gur has had its, maybe all the realms have had their effects on the Stormcast and their reforgings. Yeah. And Gur kind of infects you with this urge to fight, to be better, to be the best. And in fact, in the latest book, Stormcast actually use it against the orcs because once they destroy the orcs leader, the orcs just like, fall upon whoever they can because Gur will affect them in a way that'll just make them crazy hmm. and just make them fight for fighting sake. Uh, they're also big on wearing pelts from the picture in the book. I kind of wonder if they, they're kind of reforged to look more and more like beasts because the one in the book, they kind of look like um, he's kind of got a little bit of a Vircos look to him, like a Vircos vampire, the new werewolfy vampires. I'm wondering if they're starting to take on bestial natures. It seems like where they're fighting and what they're fighting against kind of imprints itself on them when they get reforged. Yeah. So they're kind of taking on the aspects of these large beasts they're hunting down. Yeah, and also taking aspects of the realm. That may be why they're like pushing themselves to, because before they would probably only do it out of necessity, right? These large beasts come near to the cities and they're like, okay, we got to take it down. But then more and more, instead of waiting for them, maybe they're like, oh, we got to start hunting these beasts down in their lairs, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So here we have the beginning of AOS 3.0 and it's getting so bad that Stormcast are forgetting their war chants and their tribal dirges and like everything that made them actually human they're forgetting the cultures that they came from so the administrators in azir they start to replace their all of their warrior chants and all the things that they would do with like azurite versions so that they would just have something to sing or cry out about in battle because i guess maybe the administrators found out that if they they like forgot their heritage and it wasn't replaced with anything they would maybe begin to lose empathy faster and we talk about how the eighth law was is all but forgotten but maybe there are still people trying to like give them a quick and dirty version of that eighth law in these Azurite dirges and these Azurite war chants. At this point in the story, almost every Stormcast campaign is hanging on what, what's considered to be a knife's edge because kind of because of Nagash. And then that's when at that knife's edge, that's when Marathi decides that she wants to betray the Stormcast at Varenthax's maw and steal a bunch of Varenite to fuel her apotheosis and leave the Stormcast Eternals there that are fighting there to their doom in the battle. Throughout the Broken Realms book, we wonder, like you kind of wonder where is Sigmar? What is he doing? And, yeah. and what the heck is what the heck is up with all this? But I feel like he's 
literally doing everything else in all the other realms. Like when Morathi was betraying him in Varen Thrax's maw, maybe he was in Gur dealing with that business. Or maybe when, maybe he was treating with Alariel, trying to figure that all out. Or maybe he was watching Teclas fight Nagash and like trying to figure out how that's going to work yeah. out. Yeah. Even worse, after uh, in Varenthrax's Maw, their souls, the souls of the Stormcast that were trapped and destroyed there, they were trapped inside of Chaos Shrines. If you can imagine, a whole army of Stormcast was now unable to get back to Azir to be reforged, which is really big. I mean, this is when you begin to stack problem on problem because when you have campaigns that hang on a knife's edge and your guys are getting thrown back into battle without proper training and without proper empathy. And now on top of that, they're not able to even get back up to be reforged because Nagash has found a way to trap them. And now Archeon has found a way to trap them. But I mean, maybe not permanently, but if it wasn't for uh, Bellacor allowing the Lord Veritant Kaiser Von Breck to escape the trap and ward Sigmar about this there could be tons and tons of armies of stormcast eternals that were just trapped in these chaos shrines yeah and who knows what they would be able to do with those souls maybe i mean they might be able to corrupt them they might be able to just use them to fuel their war engines because chaos is able to take souls and like throw it inside of war engines and then use it in battle oh i'm sure they would find a use for them yeah definitely well, of course we knew we know now that that Bellicor did this betrayal of Archeon to use it as a distraction for his own nefarious plot, which again, it works. It totally works. And it's even a, a bigger problem for Sigmar after his whole plot goes down because Belcor decided he wanted to open up AOS's version of the Cicatrix Maledictum in the sky above a battle at Vindicarum, the city of Vindicarum, and completely annihilated pretty much this, this storm host called the Sigmarite Brotherhood because not only when he opens up this rift in the sky, Sigmar all of a sudden it says that he's blinded like you can't you can't they can't get back up they can't get back down hmm. nothing you can't get through this storm and he does this by taking all of the gates that are around and systematically destroying them when you take all the realm gates around a place and systematically destroy them you apparently un sort of unbalance the ley lines around there. And that's what allows him to open up this rift. He was eventually pushed back by, by the Celestial Vindicators and a host of Caradron Overlords, including Grugni. But all of a sudden, the Stormcast are no longer immortal all the time. A whole storm host is trapped. A whole other storm host is lost completely. Wow. Meanwhile, at almost the same exact time, Kragnos was let out of his mountain prison where he was put there a millennia ago by Lord Croak, and he immediately goes to Excelsis amid a horde of greenskins and almost levels the place before eventually being teleported out by Lord Croak to become a thorn in the Stormcast's side, Sigmar's side, in the future. Yeah. But at least he was teleported out of there before he was able to destroy, you know, Excelsis. And so the Knights Excelsior and Astral Templars, aided by Marathi Kane after her ascension, successfully are able to defend the city after he was teleported out, and they eventually destroy the Greenskin Horde that were you know, sent to annihilate them. They do a lot of damage. They actually breach the first set of walls, and it's, it's pretty terrible. And so it's at this point in the story that Grugni decides... After the battle, he's like sort of talking with all the Caradron overlords and he realizes that he may have made a mistake by leaving them alone because they kind of become self-serving and greedy. These Caradron overlords, which are supposed to be like venerating their ancestors and following the way, the old ways, they aren't doing that. They're just kind of living their own lives, doing their own thing and not really venerating the gods like they should, or rather Grugni. 
And so Grogni kind of gets into this funk. And whenever Grogni gets into a funk, he goes back to Azir. So he goes back to Azir and they retrofit some Sigmarite armor with these special runes for Thunderstrike armor. And I guess before the, they just kind of blinded their enemies when they came down. But now they do the whole Thor supercharging Iron Man's armor thing and just blast enemies to bits when they come down with this Thunderstrike armor. Yeah. And they do it when they die. They explode when they come down. They explode when they die. Cool. So now they're, not only are you surprising an army, but teleporting down in the middle of them and blowing them to smithereens, that's yeah. pretty terrible. Um, thanks, Gregney. Right, thanks, Gregney. <laughs> but I, we're going to talk a little bit about that in, in a second, about why that might not be the best of things. Like, it's so funny how these things with the best of intentions kind of lead to some really rough they other, backfire. Yeah. yeah, they do. But also they have the aid of some old dragons that decide to join in with Sigmar, namely Krondis and Karazai. All the smaller dragons that join them are supposed to be like children of Dracothian. Normally after they die, they're reborn again after their souls ascend and then to Dracothian's peak in Azir. But now, however, the birth is not guaranteed because of the corruption of the Aether oh. and Bellicor's whole plan. All of a sudden, these dragons are not getting reborn quite like they should. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And when these two dragons found out that Kragnos was let out, they become incensed and they kind of, despite their earlier misgivings, when I say misgivings, we have to go back thousands of years, right? To the age of just, I guess, just before the age of chaos when... Kragnos was still running about. So what happened is Kragnos decides, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to take this race of centaurs. Okay. So he, pl he takes this race of centaurs called the Drogoch, D-R-O-G-R-U-K-H. And he leads them to destroy the Draconic Empire. He wants to wipe them out completely. And Krondus and um, Karazai are actually there. And Karazai is sort of Krondus's brother and kind of lives in his shadow and so eventually what happens is they call back all of their draconic brethren to kind of defend their realm and defend their nests right well the dracoths and the star drakes apparently they don't come back and that's why these dragons don't like the dracoths and the star drakes now they kind of have beef with them because they think that they they betrayed their empire by not coming back and defending it after they left and they sent out the general alarm thousands yeah. of years ago they're like hey come back we're we're getting slaughtered here and the dracoths then they're just like okay you do you you know that kind of thing yeah so eventually kragnos and and the kragnos <laughs> and the drugrach are they're destroying enough that these dragons were forced to broker a deal with the salon and apparently Lord Croak in order to take some of the, the eggs up into the salon starships and sort of incubate them there and raise them there. Now the dragons that the Stormcaster are riding, the like baby, I say baby dragons, the dragons that aren't quite the size of Krondus and Karazai, those are all the dragons that were raised in those starships. And I'm thinking that this is why Sigmar was kind of forced into the war against the Greenskins and forced to like send storm hosts against the Greenskins and Gur. Because if Dracothian still has this like beef from long ago, of course, Krondus definitely does. Krondus feels great shame about the deals she was forced to broker and everything about it. So yeah, they're going to want to go and they're going to call their allies with them. So now you can imagine it. <laughs> now he's forced on another war front. 
and forced to delegate resources to this in order to keep his allies happy. And he does because it's sort of the right thing to do. And But I think that the the true hero of this story is Karazai. Karazai the Scarred. Karazai the Scarred is Krondus's brother. and But it's sort of like Scar in The Lion King, except instead of trying to murder Krondus and her kin, Karazai just tries to go one-on-one with Kragnos and gets a mace to the face that like breaks off his horns and scars the crap out of him. It mm. makes him super unhappy. Well, yeah. But he doesn't, he doesn't, like, he does blame Krondus because Krondus was in charge of, like, the entire, the empire, right? Oh, okay. So he does blame him, but he doesn't, Karazai doesn't want to kill anybody. Well, doesn't want to kill any dragons, that is. He's very spiteful. He's super upset, constantly upset. But the reason why I say that he's the real hero of the story is because he didn't leave. He didn't teleport. He didn't go into seclusion. He didn't put himself in his ear and lock the gates and do any of that. No, he stayed during the entirety of the Age of Chaos. This is a direct quote. There is was not one day where his claws weren't bloody from destroying like chaos or greenskins. Mm. This dragon would just go around and show up on the eve of a battle and just defend people, defend yeah. anybody that would stand against chaos. He would fight with them. Cool. And I'm guessing all the other, like if you were a city of Sigmar and you were beset by chaos, you'd be like, uh, yes, we will take the help of your magnificence, uh, yeah. red dragon Karazai. So, I mean, if you think about it, he was the only one that was going around and really fighting during the age of chaos. That wasn't a, a mortal, right? I mean, maybe he did it for his own selfish needs. Maybe he did it because he was so spiteful and so upset, but he still did it. When nobody else was doing it, he was he was going around doing that. And we're talking about a period that lasted for possibly thousands of years, and every day he killed chaos and greenskins. Mm. Every day he was just like, nope, they've got to die. they got to go. True hero of the Age of Chaos. So let's get back to Sigmar now. Because now is the time, he decides that now is the right time to send lots of new armies into Gur and try to smash some greenskins. Souls are still trapped. Archeon is still assaulting the eight points, trying to corrupt the gates and get into his ear. You know, he's using Nurgle to corrupt the gates and into his ear. Stormcasts are still being slaughtered in Shaiish, even though the Necroclake is sort of dealt with for the time being. And Nagash was tucked into bed by um, Teclas, but... Slanesh is stirring and there's a whole city full of stormcast and mortals of Vindicarum that needs to be cleansed and all the realm gates are destroyed near there by Bellacor. I feel like they're just spread thin. It's kind know? of the MO of Stormcast. Yeah, they're not just spread thin, but they are like teetering on a knife's edge. Mm-hmm. And and that's where the Stormcast are right now. Now let's talk a little bit about this Thunderstrike armor because there was there were a couple of tidbits in the new Stormcast book that I thought were very interesting about them. Did you know, Renee, that that armor requires a lot of training to be used safely? Well, it makes sense. You don't want to Thunderstrike yourself and kill yourself, <laughs> well, blow up when you land, or not just that, but they talk about these early tests and how. It was so bad that records had to be sealed, whatever that means. I'm guessing that means killing any non-Stormcast involved yeah. and they're just not writing anything down. But they talk about these things called the Dahareth Cataclysm and the Actinic Unforging. And I'm wondering, did they lose entire storm hosts unforging in, in their tests? Like, did they teleport down a whole storm host in practice and then it was just, they were all unforged? Could you imagine like 500 Stormcast Eternals just poof? 
I mean, if you think about the way the Thunderstrike armor works, I mean, I could see that happening. Yeah, maybe they had like certain stresses on the soul that they didn't account for in their earliest tests and then just boom. Yep. <laughs> Whole armies just can you imagine you're like a chaos army and you're they're they're like, okay, we're gonna do this test on this chaos army that's assaulting the city, and the chaos army is assaulting the city, and then the the storm host comes down in a thunder a whole like hundreds of thunderbolts and just explodes. And the people of the city look out and there's just nothing. There's just bits of molten armor everywhere, bloody splatters of like corn warriors and zinch fires and it's like sending down bombs. Right. And then they talk about something called uh, the Deharth Cataclysm. And when you hear the word cataclysm, you think about uh, like maybe they, they sent down the storm host to like defend a city, but they were a little off or they didn't realize just how destructive it is. And they just destroyed the entire city by sending a storm host down. That's what you would think of when you think of a cataclysm. Right? Yeah. A cataclysm would have to be a huge destruction of something. Yeah. And, and the only thing that you would really think of that they would care about in a realm destroying would be like a city right mm -hmm. or maybe a town but probably a city if it's a cataclysm yep it's just crazy right so those are the stormcast eternals and that's where they were how they started and sort of where they've come to be i also wanted to mention the whole reason we talked about the history of the stormcast and where they are now is to help create a narrative your army within their world yeah so, so you kind of like, need to know the history of them where they're at now the different storm hosts so you could kind of figure out where your stormcast army is yeah and i you know when i hear people talk about the stormcast eternals and especially in the beginning but now a little bit much they they say oh well they're the the poster boys for gw in age of sigmar uh they're just kind of you know stormcast eternals they have problems reforging but when we talk about how these hosts are so different, even the hammers of Sigmar, nobody ever talks about how they're they're seen in the, as the populace as like these these cold warriors that just train for they just train and they fight, but they weren't always like that. They don't yeah. talk about how the celestial vindicators you know, might murder a city, <laughs> you know, they don't talk about the problems that they have, which I think is what makes them a good army. Please stay tuned. Talk a little bit about how my Stormcast army uh, fits in with their narrative. After that, I'll, I'll talk with Renee about she had a Stormcast army in the very beginning of Age of Sigmar that she just sort of painted up because she wanted to paint it, right? Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about maybe what you might think they are going through or how they might evolve based on what we just talked about. Is that okay? Yep, sounds good. All right, so stay tuned for that. Thank you. So we're back kind of talking about a little bit of the nittier, grittier details that we enjoy with Stormcast. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about my favorite Stormcast in a Black Library book, book first. I think that it it probably has to be the um, the Stormcast that's with Gotrick, who's like slowly going mad and kind of has this weird PTSD going on, and he is trying to be a good person. Like you can see that even in his internal dialogue, he's trying to be a good person. He's trying to like convince Gotrick to like go to Azir and and help out, or at least let the God King have the rune that's inside of Gotrick. And he's also kind of, he, he almost can't help himself being a good person. Even though you can see that his humanity is slipping away. When the witch elf that's with them gets in like mortal danger, he he's like, I should leave her. And then he doesn't, <laughs> you know, he goes over and helps her. And 
and, and doesn't leave her. And I feel like kind of he's fighting against his nature almost. He's fighting against the, um, you can see his mind eroding out from him, especially in the third book. Oh, and Gitslayer, he is just out of his mind almost and super weird. But I feel like he's definitely still trying to be a good person. And I think that's really what the Stormcast are all about. They are trying to be good people. They were good people in life and they're trying to be good people as Stormcast Eternals. And they have to fight constantly against this like erosion of their humanity in whatever way, shape or form it compromises. And just like hum- humans, I think they slip up. I feel like every once in a while they'll, they'll screw up. And I, I will say it does feel like Sigmar gives second chances. He does give second chances. In fact, he actually takes, he will take a champion of chaos that wants to redeem itself and make that one, that person into a stormcast if they have a strong enough will, Mm. which says something about it. Now, that being said, I'm curious, what is, Renee, what is your favorite stormcast character, like of the ones named in the book? Reading all of them, I was kind of drawn to Neve Black Talon. I don't know. She just sounded cool. Well, she's a knight Zephyros. She wields these two Tempest axes. She has a group of Black Talons, a band of elite warriors that follow her around. That's really cool. And let me ask you, does it feel weird that your favorite Stormcast character, a hero amongst legends, is actually like this assassin? No. So you don't mind that she uses stealth and uh, coercion and, and strikes from the shadows instead of like meeting her foe face to face? I don't think so. Well, the other thing that drew me to her was she hunts down Nurgles. Nurgles. She, she hunts, hunts down Nurgles. Nope. From now on, they're all going to be Nurgles. <laughs> That's really cool. Because I think out of all the different armies, Nurgle is my least favorite. Yeah. Is that what? Well, I'm just curious. Why? Why is Nurgle your least favorite? I don't know. They're just gross and nasty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nurgle. That's, yeah. You've just described Nurgle. Yeah. Excellent. My favorite, I think, is um, Gabriel Sherhart. And the reason why Gabriel Sherhart is my favorite is because when you think about, like, chaos champions that may have risen from the lowest of the low to become the highest of the high, you think about, or even, say, Asdrubal Vect of the Drakari. He was a lowly slave that rose to be the highest in Kamara, and he's without peer. He's vicious, brutal, merciless killer, He's, he's risen to the top and he's going to stay there through any means necessary, treachery or what have you. Gabriel Sherhart started out as this like lowly blood servant in one of these keeps. And his job like every day was to take buckets of blood and carry them up and, and like pour them into this running stream just so that way the blood would keep flowing. That was his only like duty. And he was like abused. He was Obviously, he had a horrible childhood growing up. And you would think that when somebody like that grows to be like a, a man or a woman, then be influenced by their environment, just like Astrobal Vect was. But he actually has um, that he went into this gladiatorial arena and just started beating people left and right. He just, uh, because I guess he was really strong from carrying all those buckets of blood or whatever. He would be, yeah. And I guess he was just naturally, I guess he was just naturally good at fighting. It's kind of weird because he actually, he stood, he, he like rebelled against the corn general. You know, he helped this rebellion against the general and was killed for it, by the way. He was not, um, his, his 
end did not come well. The coordinates hunted him down and, and murdered him. So instead of him being this like spiteful, horrible person who just takes up the mantle of his oppressor, he over who tries to overthrow him and doesn't get that position, doesn't want it doesn't want that mantle of power. And I feel like Sigmar saw that and gave him this second chance. He's like, okay, you know what? We're going to pluck this soul up and we're going to give you a second chance, which is weird because when, when Marathi in the broken realms book was um, feeding souls to Slanesh, they were kind of poisoned because they were souls that were poisoned by the other gods. You wonder if the other gods, once she becomes a God or when she became a God, Marathi Cain, whether she can do the same thing that he can, can she redeem lost, um, lost elves? There's a stormcast that says that he remembers a, a demon with elven arms slicing him in two. Can she redeem that demon of Slanesh if, if they were strong enough willed, just like Sigmar's redeeming this particular coronate champion? I wouldn't be surprised if she could. She's was, a god. I like to see a good redemption story. I like to see that okay, well, this guy who was at the forefront of a, you know, of a failed insurrection, he's now like, he leads insurrections against other, other towns, other cities that are just enslaved by chaos. There are some names that Games Workshop comes up with that I do not like at all. Oric in particular and Ogor, things like that. I do not like that. But one thing that I think they got perfectly right, they hit directly the nail right on the head was slaves to darkness because when you are a follower of the chaos god you are a slave to their darkness you are uh you you have to follow their whimsical fancies whatever they say it goes i mean you might be looking only out for yourself but you have to follow where they lead and it i think that name is just so apt but knowing that you can you know take a a champion of chaos and redeem him it, it it's really nice. It happened again with a Nurgle champion too, but that's <laughs> what, what do you have to say? I see like you frowning over there. What do you have to say about that? I'm just scowling. Cause the idea, uh, like how are you going to redeem a Nurgle champion? They're all nasty. And I mean, I know that it's just their souls and we have to understand how Nurgle gets you. It's not necessarily the physical corruption that gets you. He also gets you with depression. He beats a populace down just makes them so depressed that they eventually fall to his predations because he's like, well, we're having a good time over here. He's got this forced joviality thing going on to a depressed population or somebody that's just dragged in and out of the muck every single day. Looking over and seeing the monstrosities of Nurgle having fun, they're like, I I guess, whatever. I just, it's better than this. It has to be better than this. And it isn't. It, It isn't at all. And some of the, people who do dedicate themselves to Nurgle because of this oppression and depression. I think they found like a sort of a higher calling in Sigmar. Sigmar will reach out out to them and say, Hey, would you like to be lifted out of this muck that you are considerably mired in? Mm -hmm. And if that answer is yes, then perhaps, I mean, they do have to die in order for it to happen. So it's not like they, you know, they can't go up into Azir all bloated and nasty. It's just Do you think soul. Sigmar warns them that every time they die, they're going to lose their humanity? I don't think he really has to in this regard because almost, I, I don't say every follower of Chaos, but most of them know that if you aren't blessed with immortality, then your soul will be consumed by the God that you worship on death. Or maybe they don't know that. I don't know. I know Sigmar is probably not telling them. 
And no. he's just saying, hey, uh, this is a, you can redeem yourself. You know, and then he doesn't give them the fine details. Yeah. But some of them have, you know, gone on to do really good things. So let's move on a little bit to your favorite model. What is your favorite model in this army, you know, that's currently available? Um, I had to pick the Lord Celestine on Star Drake. For one, because I've painted one up, but they're just dragon. I mean, it's cool. You like dragons? Yeah. I like dragons. He's big. Are He's you gonna, cool looking. Are you going to paint up one of the big dragons when they come out? I don't know. I don't know if I could do it justice. They look really cool. I want to paint one up. I kind of want to paint the red one up. The true hero, remember? Yeah. True hero of the uh, of the ages. I also think that the mini dragons with the Stormcast riding on them, I think they look kind of cool too. Yeah. So that's your favorite model then? Yeah. My favorite model right now, looking at my arm, well, actually just looking at all of the, the army, I'm going to have to go with Annihilators. I think that the pose of the model, the way that they look, they're they're just proportioned so well, and they've got that round shield. Oh, I love that shield, and I feel like you can do so so much with that. They could they could be living statues. They could be warriors about to strike. I love that they come down and do damage, and and they just look cool. Whenever I put them on the battlefield, my opponent's like, "Whoa, okay, those guys are a little bit bigger than the rest of your boys, <laughs> and they've got big shields." What's their saving? Like two plus. <laughs> They're like have eighteen mortal wounds, but I I really like that, really really like that. If you had to pick a second model, what would it be? I'm just curious. Well, I can go with my the one that I picked for my favorite war scroll because that was my runner up, and it was the Lord Castellant and Griffhound. Oh, Lord Castellant and Griff, I love those Griff dogs. Yeah, I will say I love the little Griff dog that comes in that came in the um the original Silver Tower set. He was so cute. He's just a little faithful Griff dog hound. And we yeah, playing, well, I was going to say on the, he gets four attacks. In the, so, oh, yeah, he can, he's that little and, and, and cute. <laughs> well, what I loved was that uh, when we were playing, we, at, at some point we only had three players in Silver Tower. And when you have three players in Silver Tower, you're supposed, it's like a cooperative game. You're supposed to add the Griff dog as like the fourth player. Mm-hmm. And he's this faithful Griff hound that like takes hits for everybody so every time somebody like the grip dog would run up and and the enemies would attack and he'd be like oh, oh no and i'm i'm like no you killed grip dog we're gonna get you <laughs> oh poor grip dog he would always be going down yeah we'd have to usually one of us would play a healer just so that way we could heal him poor little guy yep yeah so my second would definitely be the griff hounds i love griff hounds I think they look cool. So what was your fav what's your favorite war scroll? My favorite war scroll. I did my homework. You didn't do yours. I did. I, I had the answer. I just don't know what it's they're called Dracothian Guard Concussors. They're the the stormcasts that are riding Dracoths and they have the big hammers. I mm. love those things. I think they're really cool. They play really well. They hit hard. They have tons of wounds. A great save. They do mortal wounds as a ranged attack. What's their keywords? Are they a behemoth? No, no, they're not behemoth. It's just, it's like heavy cavalry. Oh, okay. No fly. Oh, they don't fly? No, no, no. They're the like little dracoths without wings. Oh. Little, you know, you, you painted up some that were the crossbow ones. Yeah. Remember those? Yeah. They look more like lions or something. Yeah, they kind of do. They almost feel like a cross between a dragon and a lion. Yeah. I love those things because you can just put them into anything. They will do damage. They get across the board quickly after you deal like a bunch of damage to them. 
Yeah, that can really, really wreck their plans hard. Yep. I like it a lot. Oh, plus they have good damage weapons too. Like all their weapons are Ren minus two damage too. So oh, that's it's nice. Really nice. So my my favorite War Scroll, like I mentioned earlier, was Lord Castellant and Griffhound, and I liked it because the Lord Castellant has his Warding Lantern. And I like that he's flexible. He can target either a friendly union, unit or an enemy unit within 18 inches of him. So I like that he has the flexibility. And I also like he has eight attacks, four from him, four from his Griffhound. And his attacks have rend and two damage. So there's a little bit of rend there. Yeah, so you're able to really kind of get into some of those five and six wounds here, wound heroes and just say, hey, I can really threaten you here. If I do, if I get two unsaved wounds off and then maybe like one from a Griff Dog. And then his warding lantern, I mean. Yep. And you can, you can like, if you hit twice with him and then do four damage and, I mean, wound twice with him, do four damage, and then the griff dog gets the last hit or mm-hmm. the last wound, you can be like, yeah, you got dragged down by the griff dog. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. so he's my favorite. I've got actually two of them, if you can imagine. I've got one that's in my Stormcast army, added a couple more armored parts. I'm not in my Stormcast army, shoot. I've got one that's in my Space Marine army, and he is a chaplain in Terminator armor. And what I did was I I kind of replaced a couple of the armored plates on him with Terminator armor, but otherwise left him pretty much as he was. Mm. And he looks really cool. He's got that skull helm. He's got the, like, banner-looking-like thing. It looks really cool. It looks kind of like a chaplain. So I put one there, and then I painted one up for the Stormcast army. And I have one for my Stormcast army. Oh, you do. That's right. That's right. You do. I forgot. Yeah, so we're overflowing with Lord Castellans. Yeah, yeah, Lord Castellans coming out of our behinds. That's our favorite stuff in the Stormcast army. Uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, what are you, what are you guys' favorite models? What are your favorite War Scrolls or maybe favorite characters? I want to hear from you. If you if you want, you can email us at seriouslynarrativepodcast at gmail.com or you can go on our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash seriouslynarrativepodcast, all one word. Leave us a message or leave us a whatever, and let us know and maybe we'll read it. That reminds me, I did get an email um, the other day on on our Seriously Narrative podcast email about a guy who, uh, one of the guys from our store who runs GoTrick. Yeah, he's a guy named Jim who runs GoTrick kind of um, regularly at the store and he was trying to, um, he was talking about what you can do against him and he said that the Ossiac Burn Reapers have access to a spell that's really effective against him. It's called Drain Vitality. As a casting value of six, if successfully cast, pick one enemy unit within 18 inches that's visible. Until your next hero phase, reroll unmodified hit rolls of sixes for attacks made by that unit. So if you target Gotrick with that unit, all of a sudden he isn't doing that horrendous mortal wound output that he normally would be. I mean, unless he rerolls the sixes into sixes, but... And you also have to reroll unmodified save rolls of six for the the unit and it's it's particularly good against gotrick so anyway he thought that that would be good to pass along and i think it's a good spell especially if you're a osiak burn reapers army it's going to be hard for you to take on gotrick uh he he slaughters through most of that army even if you constantly bring guys back thank you very much jim for that that's greatly appreciated i'd like to move on now to what my stormcast army is and kind of the story and the narrative behind my stormcast army and the narrative behind renee's stormcast army So I'll go first if you like. That's fine. So the narrative behind my army are that all of my Stormcast were fighting in Shaiish when the um, Shaiishian Nadir was first opened and the Necroquake happened. They had to fight against, they had to fight against Nighthaunt in a time when Nighthaunt weren't particularly well understood. 
and they were very frustrated because their weapons would go through them and they would get targeted by their attacks that would go through their shields and things like that. So what they did was they, um, they took one of their hands, their left hand, and they imbued it with energy, Shaishian magic, amethyst magic. So that way they always had a hand that could block a night haunt mm. or could grab a night haunt, hold it in place. Now they've been long, long allies of Valerial. And so one of the things that they did when they were releasing her, they were there when she was released uh, and replanted. And one of the things that they did was to a man, they sacrificed themselves one, one death each in order to gain her trust and also to gain her blessing. And so she imbued their right hand with life magic from Gairan. And so with their left hand, they grab or block a night haunt. And with their right hand, they use that to make the night haunt mortal again. Mm. And then they crush that mortal. <laughs> they and then they kill it, or maybe they drag it away, yeah, and and prevent it from being used in in armies. And we've seen this happen. We've seen a particularly adept individuals like Teclas change Night Haunt back into mortal men, who then like you know fall to their deaths because they were floating in the air. So why not Stormcast and why not Alarial? We mm-hmm. we have a pretty good kind of repertoire with Alarial. She's she's good. So I painted up my um. I painted up my Stormcast one with, they've got like an amethyst purple hand and then their right hand and maybe weapon has like a, um, a green tinge to it. Your green hue. Paint. Your green hue. They hate Night Haunt particularly. Yep. And they go out of their way to hunt them. And right now I'd like to say that they are being, they, they keep being sent on these errands that have nothing to do with Night Haunt. They're like have nothing to do with ending the unquiet dead. Because that is kind of done with now. It's the microquake is kind of no more. And so they're in Gairan having to go up against orcs and stuff, which they don't necessarily mind, but they think is a little bit of a waste. Mm. They, they don't like being there. They don't want to be there. They're like, why are we, why are we going and, and defending or rather attacking something that doesn't need to be attacked? Why are we in Gur? Why aren't we attacking Archeon's armies? You know, why aren't we getting maybe Archeon's armies to the brink of destruction? Or why am I not attacking, you know, with, with Croak and the and his bunch attacking Silver Towers? Hmm. If they're going to sacrifice themselves, they want to, they want it to be a worthy sacrifice like in the past. When they are, when they die over and over again, their humanity begins to erode so that half of them turns into a living plant, like a tree. And then the other half of them turns into an unquiet spirit that haunts the tree. So they eventually turn into kind of um, souls trapped inside of trees. Oh, interesting. Eventually, they'll flash back into existence as this like, as just a hollow tree that's like ghostly green and then has like tinges of purple inside. Mm. And my imagine, I like the way that I would imagine it is that in Shaiish, maybe in one of the like far far-reaching places in Shaish, there's like a little valley that has just hundreds and hundreds of these trees from Stormcast from when, and it's just kind of their afterlife. And and they just haunt the land. Nagash probably would hate it, but since it's made out of Gyranian magic, it's made out of life magic, he can't touch it. Or if he does, it he does so at such a high cost that it's just not worth doing. He's just like, okay, well, we'll just put it over there and lock it away. 
Mm. I don't know. He might even be okay with him being there because they're trapped. They're they're souls that are trapped there. So those are souls that Sigmar stole that he now has back. Even if he can't really get to them, at least Sigmar can't either. Yeah. That's my narrative for my Stormcast army. What about you? Okay. So talking about my Stormcast army, they are from first edition. I haven't really updated them to second or third edition. So trying to think of a narrative, how they come into the, third edition how did they survive all the different events that happened and since I do like the dragons and I do have the star drake I'm thinking that they are kind of in line with Dracothian so I have a lizardman army so what I'm thinking is that one of my slan priests is the one that took these these eggs from Dracothian up to their starship and hatched them and so that's how the your stormcast army is kind of allied with your yeah before all this, they they kind of used the dragons and and definitely, you know, the Star Drake and everything. But now that all the stuff's happened, they're more closely aligned with Dracothian. You mean now that Kragnos is out and about again and is a real presence, is rampaging across Gur looking for vengeance and trying to maybe eat some dragons? Yeah. So I might have to look into getting some some more dragons for my army maybe some of those storm drake guard the the ones that are riding on the baby i say baby dragons like yeah. smaller dragons yeah like i said i haven't updated my models since first edition so they definitely need a rehaul they definitely need something to help them out and i'll tell you what these storm drake guard oh they are nasty but i have to finish my corn army first yes you do i'm helping you with that yeah we didn't really talk about what we were going to do as far as um paint wise goes like what we were going to paint so do you want to do you want to make a promise now? Not a promise. Make a paint promise. Not That's what we'll call it, our paint promise. And you guys can't see, but I'm holding my fist to my heart and closing my eyes reverently. It's a paint promise. It's a paint promise. She just gave me a lewd gesture. <laughs> I don't remember what I have to paint still for my army. Well, I'll tell you what your paint promise was for last time, but you didn't do any. It was a, a completely just, it's put together, but he's he's primed. That's all. And he's he's the hero that has the anvil that's just, he's swinging it around. That's what you wanted to do last time. Okay. So I can work him? on him. All right. You're going to get him not just tabletop ready. You're going to get him ready for the shelf, right? That's the hope. That's the hope. Don't worry, guys. I'll keep her to it. I'm slave driver Matt over here. Yep. I've got my corn whips, don't you worry. Got my bloodthirster with the corn whips. Mm-hmm. My bloodthirster. I painted her up. Both she, of them, actually. But she's my mother and she's father. My mother. Oh, yeah, she's your mother, all right. If, I, if anybody had a bloodthirster for a mother, it's definitely Renee. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, so I think that what I want to do, I want to do three things before next time, before two weeks is up. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take another corn unit just like the last one, and I'm going to paint it up 100%, ready for the shelf. And then I'm going to put together my Gorkonaut, and maybe I'll try and paint it. Those are my hobby goals for next time. And the Gorkonaut's going to be a long paint job, I think. And it's going to be, you know, a long time. It's going to take me at least a night to put it together, and it's going to probably take me three or three or four days to paint it. So I'll definitely, I'll definitely be doing that. So that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I was thinking about what my next army's going to be. Or at least what I'm going to paint up next. And I have a lot of cruel boys. So I'm thinking maybe I might dip into some cruel boys after, after we finish the corn. And after I finish my 40 K orcs, I, I really kind of, I like the look of those cruel boys. Mm-hmm. I still don't know if I like the way they play on the table because 
I don't know. I've only had a one or two games with them with opponents that are you know, really know what they're doing. But I feel like I feel like at the very least the models look really good. I mean, even if they do, people say they look like Lord of the Rings orcs, but I like Lord of the Rings orcs. I think they look good. They have a lot more character to them. Definitely, definitely. They they kind of have that weird squat thing kind of going on. If you know what I mean? Yeah. But I kind of like them. I like the fact that they're all drippy and nasty and I kind of want to make them with swamp bases just like I made my storm cast. So that'll be a little bit of a, a thing. I'll use the, the real water, the, the water effects. Yep. So again, holding my fist up to my heart, our hobby promise. <laughs> she's giving me another, this time she's giving me a rude look instead of a rude gesture. Next up is going to be, next up is going to be a small short story that I wrote. I'm sorry I didn't have time to write that much more, but it's kind of what I thought a Stormcast would think about. Let's say one of these Stormcasts that are stuck in a, like guarding a city, but they've been reforged like one too many times. And I didn't go with anything super nasty or terrible, but it's still something that highlights inhumanity. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Streaks of Grey Hollis stood to the left of the gates that separated the city from the dangers of the realm outside. His eyes registered the flow of people coming in and out, but their voices were indistinct. The noise of the crowd could be heard as a murmur of voices. They overlapped one another, and none stood out among the others. That is what Oris's life felt like, an overlapping murmur of memories in the background of his mind. Sometimes he would strain to see one distinct face, or hear one voice in particular. They always slipped away, like the crowd that moved in and out of the city. The problem was, he could recall having perfectly intact memories not so long ago. How could one have a memory of recollection, but not the memory itself? It was as if he lost a tooth, and his tongue kept finding the hole where it should have been. One thing he could remember was Sigmar. How could he forget? The name was embossed on his armor in four different places. It was etched in gold leaf around his pauldron and on streamers that hung from his chest plate. That name distracted him from the fog of his memories, but it was irksome. A catchy tune from a song you couldn't shake. Sometimes, Wallace hated Sigmar for that. A small hand touched one of his gauntleted fingers, then ran away with a screech. I did it! I did it! The little girl shouted to the children who played around the entrance gates. I told you it was a statue, she said. Aw, my mom saw it move, the confident voice of a boy of seven answered. They don't move much, but they do. How could they know that Aulis was more than a statue? He did not feel much like a man anymore but they would have gawked to see the charcoal likenesses of their parents and grandparents Aulis had drawn over the years. Faded now, with parchment yellowing, but almost the same scenes of the hustling city life. Aulis looked at those sketches often. He found he could remember one in fifty, and on a bad day, one in a hundred. He tried to capture the image of the little girl in his mind, 
running away with a look of exultation so he could sketch it later. By Sigmar, it was difficult to remember now. Ugh, Sigmar, that name again. The image he tried to hold slipped from his mind, and all he could remember was a tinkle of laughter and a warmth inside. One of his lips was upturned behind the golden mask, but his jaw cramped as though he'd held it for too long. He looked out through the crowd again. A woman struggled to pull a cart of turnips in. She wasn't old, but streaks of gray were present throughout her hair. Did he remember her curly, frizzy hair darker just a day ago? Was she this hunched over yesterday when she came through? After the sun dipped below the horizon, Aulus began his plodding toward the shared barracks. Though it was dark, he could see with perfect clarity. He saw the woman pushing the cart and sketched her in his mind. As soon as he returned and could strip his gauntlets off, he grabbed a piece of parchment and began to outline. He captured the terms perfectly. The cart was the same as it ever was. The woman's arms were strong, with corded muscles. Her face? He took one large fingernail and dragged it across the face. A smear, because he couldn't remember. The hair? He remembered the gray and hung the page on a hook. He began with last year's book and worked back from there. He had organized all of his sketches by year, though some books were almost four or five times the size of others. He feared that sometimes he missed some of the year-end announcements that told him to start a new book. Aulis's stomach sank as the hours passed. He looked through almost 60 books before he found the image he was looking for. It was a woman, hale and strong, with hair exactly like that he had sketched. No streaks of gray. Was this her? The woman's face was angular, with a strong nose and eyes slitted against the wind. Aulus realized as the yellowed vellum crumpled at the end of the page that this was not recent. He had thought it to be the same person. He thought it was only a day, maybe a two, since he had seen her. He removed the other pieces of his armor and massaged out his aching calves. His head and shoulders sank, and he rubbed his eyes. How had decades gone by, and he had not noticed. It wasn't even her in the picture. Probably a descendant, a daughter, or maybe even granddaughter. How did he lose this much time? Aulis lay on his back and stared at the ceiling painted in gold, as he did every night. He rarely slept, though he didn't need to. His eyes crawled across the script painted there. Sigmar. He read it over and over. Sigmar. Sigmar. Ugh, Sigmar. His eyes were watery, and his cheeks stained with tears, though he did not remember why he wept. He remembered frizzy hair pulled back into a bun, streaked with gray. When the light hit the window next to him, he rose and unclipped the charcoal sketch. He opened a book much thicker than the rest and placed it on top. His current year. I must be sketching a lot, Aulus thought. Aulus washed himself. Aulus washed himself and consumed the comestible left at his doorstep. He armored himself, then walked with slow purpose to his post and stood to the left of the gates that separated the city from the dangers of the realm outside. Our question today doesn't have anything to do with 
crunchy rules or anything. It's more of a philosophical question. And that question is, should Sigmar have made the Stormcast? Did he did he mess up or did he do good? I think, I don't know. I think his intentions were good. I, I think he, yeah, I think he should have. You think he should have? Could you imagine what would have happened if they weren't around? Like all those cities, all the battles. Well, he could have used his, um, I mean, he could just be, have been training up normal humans instead of Stormcast to use armor like that, right? Maybe not teleport them into the battlefield. Maybe he has to pull an Archeon and actually have his armies march into battle. It would have, it would have taken a lot more bodies, literally. That's true. But think about it this way. Like, what would have happened if he had, um, if he had had all of that armor and the only thing that comes back after, after the guy dies is the armor. Not the soul. The soul light goes away, but the armor comes back. Yeah, but where's the soul going to go? Well, to Nagash? That's the thing. The soul would go to the underworld where all the other souls go, except for the ones that go to the chaos gods. And you wonder, would this have made it so, like, would Nagash maybe not have been so negative toward Sigmar? I mean, he may have still betrayed him, but maybe not. Nagash is kind of odd. And if you give Nagash what Nagash wants, if, if, if Sigmar had said, yes, you are the soul keeper of the underworld and I am, I respect that and here are your souls. Here are the souls that you, you that and what if Nagash would have betrayed him and then Nagash has all these extra souls? I don't know. I mean, they he kind of has them anyway, right? I guess, but it I mean, this is a lot of what ifs and oh, yeah. maybe he should have. We're kind of armchair quarterbacking Sigmar. Oh, like he he didn't know. You have to I guess we have to understand that he didn't know that the degradation of the soul would become this severe that he would be stretched this thin across At least not this in the beginning. Many, yeah, across this many fronts. I, I think that he thought that he was just going to steamroll chaos, kind of like how he did in the Age of uh, Myth, and then set up a new Age of Myth, right? Yeah. And I don't think that's what's happening now. I think that it's sort of developing into almost a stalemate, but one that is kind of bad for them, because chaos kind of always has bodies to be churned in for the grinders. Yeah. Of war. I don't know. I don't know. What if? What if? Yeah. What if he had made it just the armor? But could he have made that much armor for however many, like, because every Stormcast, let's say, is the worth of a hundred men. Then could he have made a hundred suits of armor? For every one suit that he made. Yep. I don't think so. That's a question. I don't know. They're still making them and they don't lose any of the armor. The armor seems, it seems always comes back. The souls are trapped though. Or have started to become trapped. So I'm wondering, are the, is the armor trapped with the souls? I don't know. And right now, it's a relatively small amount of souls that are trapped if, in the grand scheme of things. You've got like one storm host that's completely annihilated. So the armor may be destroyed. And then one storm host that's trapped, you know, and not even all of those are trapped because they destroyed some of those chaos shrines. And then Nagash has a couple or had a couple. Yeah. So you have to wonder... You know, is it, is he fighting a losing battle right now? And what could he do? Here's another question. What do you think he could do right now, Sigmar, to like change the tide of war? I have no idea. Well, he obviously can't give up the eight points. He, I mean, he can't give up the all points. He can't give up uh, anything against Archeon because that equals pretty much total destruction. Yeah. Now he could pull out of Shaiish now that the Necroquake is dealt with. 
he could kind of uh, pull back his boys that were hunting endless spells and say, okay, well, now we need to focus on rehabilitation and trying to reforge in a more sustainable way. I don't know if he could, though. Is he past the point of no return? Yeah, that's the question. And and then here's another question. Could he start giving up on souls that come back to him and instead infuse new souls? Like look for new champions mm. among mortals. Does he have the time to do that, though? Yeah, that's a good question because he used a long time in the Age of Chaos to do it. But then again, he's got more boots on the ground that he can see. His Stormcast fight with cities of sigmar so he could see directly down and say okay well in the cities of sigmar army here's a champion that is you know trying to fight to his very last maybe i can pluck him up yeah make him into a new storm host that's one out of you know hundred thousand uh warriors yeah i mean if you think about it he really only needs like what 50 for a storm host really yeah but that's Maybe 50 and, I don't know, maybe the biggest one's 500 or something. So he could do that. It takes time. I'm going to say that given everything that I know now, I don't think it was a mistake to make the storm cast Eternals. Mm -mm. But I think it was a mistake to do what he did with them, to use them recklessly, to ignore the eighth law, and to not try to use shortcuts, right? To win. Yeah. Try to use shortcuts, use shortcuts to win battles, but you can't use shortcuts to win wars. And that's what this feels like. It feels like just a long, drawn out war. And I think that right now what he's doing, which is trying to cement relationships between Teclis and the elves and the dragons and Dracothia, like he, he does a good job of that. And I think that's what's needed, right? Because he can't shoulder the weight everywhere all Mm -hmm. on his own. And I think that he could probably do a lot more with fire slayers Especially, and and maybe even with the Caradron Overlords, because you saw they worked particularly well together. I feel like if he was to um, work with Grugney on that, maybe it might help. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe. But that's our philosophical question. I know it was kind of odd, an oddball question to have, but I was, it was bouncing around in my head. I was thinking about it last night, even. Yeah. While I was painting. It was just interesting. Yep. All right. Thanks so much, guys. I hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your week and happy Halloween if we don't talk to you before then. Actually, I don't think we will. I think our next episode is slated to come out in the beginning of November. So, you know, get some painting in. Happy October and hope you guys stay safe on Halloween. Thank you for listening to Seriously Narrative, a Warhammer podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us for questions, please email us at seriouslynarrativepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com backslash seriouslynarrativepodcast. This episode of Seriously Narrative a Warhammer podcast is protected by the Creative Commons license. If you have any questions about the Creative Commons license, please visit their website at creativecommons.org. Music is provided by Incompetech, created by Kevin McLeod, and used under the Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening.